Welcome to the Reimagine Medicine podcast. We explore topics that are shaping healthcare with specialists who are leading innovative change. Head injuries are common in children and teens. They can be nothing more than an owie, like a bump on the head, or more serious, like a concussion. It can be hard to tell the difference between those that require just some TLC and those that require medical attention. Head injuries are more common when children are active with outdoor activities and playing sports, which is nearly year-round here in Arizona. Children and parents alike are excited about the return of youth sports after a hiatus due to the pandemic, and we want you to be prepared. Lois Sayers specializes in child health and injury. Dr. Sayers will help us answer the question, if your child experiences a head injury, how do you know when it is time to see the doctor? I'm Dr. Johnny Lifshitz. I'm Dr. Katie Bright. We are faculty members at the University of Arizona College of Medicine, Phoenix. Thank you for joining us. It's great to have you with us. The opinions expressed in this podcast are those of the hosts and their guests and do not represent the opinions of the University of Arizona College of Medicine, Phoenix, or Banner Health. Do not use this podcast for medical advice. Instead, consult your personal family physician for medical care. Joining us today is Dr. Lois Sayers. Dr. Sayers is a senior research scientist in child health and injury, specializing in trauma and surgical studies. She serves as a research assistant professor with the University of Arizona College of Medicine, Phoenix, and program director with Arizona State University's Center for Applied Behavioral Health Policy. Welcome, Dr. Sayers. Thank you for having me. We're so glad you could be here. So I am a family physician and a primary care doctor, but I'm also a busy mom of three boys who are just crazy. They're all about sports, sports, sports. They love playing all of them, even football. You know, as an example, my 10 year old son plays competitive soccer and he's so excited because next year he'll be 11 and he gets to start doing headers. So all of these things that make me kind of cringe, some to some of our active kiddos are so excited about. I was hoping you could just share with our, with our listeners so if a child does experience a head injury, what are we talking about? Just a little bump or a bruise versus, you know what? You have some symptoms that are concerning and we recommend that you seek medical attention. Children do experience different injuries at different ages and the age does uh, impact the severity. So we often think about like you're talking about your children in sports and they're between five maybe and 21 is say school age. And I would say before that though, when a child is an infant, I would say if they're under two, a lot of my research suggests that we, we should never see a head injury in a child under two, but yet we do. So then we want to consider then what are those sources of the head injury and, and how can we prevent those in two to five as a child is toddling around and, and, and hitting their head on things. Again, this is um, traditionally thought of as not particularly on a, you know, a, a significant event, but um, I think we have to rethink that if we're reimagining medicine to say that you know head injuries are cumulative. So if you're having a lot of head injuries when you're young, um, does that necessarily mean that you can um, just continue have head injuries as you grow? What I would do is I would educate the parents. I would say, okay, your kids are in sports. Do you happen to know what the concussion protocol is of every sport that your kid is participating in? If you don't, then find that out. 
do you know the statistics about the sport your kid's participating in? How many kids get injuries and what kinds of injuries do they get? And if they do get head injuries, what, what, are, what are some of the kinds of head injuries as a parent you want to know as much as you can about how the school, uh, how seriously the school or the, in, the, the community uh, team takes that in concussion and what they are doing about it. I, I would imagine if I surveyed 100 parents, not one of them know the concussion protocol of their kids' teams. I think it's great advice to get educated, ask questions. And then also as a, as a primary care physician, I would say when in doubt, we're always happy to, to chat to our, with our patients, our families, and, and give advice as well. So it's never a stupid question. And when in doubt, come on in and get checked right. out. But that's right. great, great advice. And Lois, I, I really appreciate the way that you took Katie's question and separated it by age. There's another demographic that we really need to separate on, and that is gender or sex, depending on how we're asking specific questions. Um, I've had the great fortune of working with you on scientific studies, and we found some sex differences in infants. We were calling them sex differences because they were still very young children. Can you talk about the differences in the causes of head injury? With, for children under five, head injuries are the leading cause of death. And that's a very serious thing. We don't think about that a lot. We think about cancer and other things that might happen to a child, but really injury, even from birth to age five is very, very serious and easily leads to organ failure and respiratory um, failure. And so let me talk about that first. What we were finding was that um, children were coming into the ED and under the age of five with falls and all kinds of falls. Someone was holding them and tripped. Someone dropped them off their lap. Uh, they put them in a, a baby carrier and the, and they, the, the baby carrier um, fell out of the, uh, fell off a table. And so we then uh, did research on that and were able to kind of classify injuries associated with supervisory neglect into five, roughly five categories categories using some pretty fancy um, text tools. And uh, the, the first category is what we would call distracted parenting. So you're not a distracted parent, but some people are on their phone a lot. And, you know, five seconds on your phone could be the difference in a head injury um, for a child. They could go from one safe position to a non-safe position. Uh, that is usually occurring when you're changing the baby on a changing table and you decide to take a phone call while you're changing a baby. The other category was equipment, not failure. The equipment isn't failing. The parent's not using the equipment properly. They're putting the baby seat on a bench. I don't wanna put my baby near the germs on the floor, but that's the safest place for the baby. You put them on a bench or a seat and they're at risk for fall. Another common place a baby is put is on the counter in the kitchen. And when a baby is only even, um, and, and you know, Katie, you can speak to this, a baby doesn't need to be even nine months old and they can push themselves from a wall right off the counter. And we saw that injury a lot. Uh, the other category was um, substitute care. We all need help. We can't do it ourselves. We put them in daycare, grandma comes over. For some families that's um, you know, relatively safe. Grandma knows what she's doing. And for other families, um, it may not be as safe. Uh, frankly, just the other parent may not be as trained as you are. And they get distracted. They're not sure what to do. And we don't educate um, each other as parents um, 
around what the risks are for injury. So that's, uh, so being careful, be inter- kind of educating your substitute caregiver, whether they're your mother-in-law or your spouse um, or whomever. I want to say something else about that too. Oftentimes parents will put an older child in charge of a younger child. That's a very risky situation. They, they causes injury all the time. We're actually writing a paper right now on what we're calling sibling on sibling injury. Um, I saw one case where the child was jumping over the infant in the baby seat and tripped and fell on the baby and the baby uh, incurred a concussion. You know, and in fairness, many of these single injury concussions of babies can recover very fine from. But we aren't these preventable? I think that's my point here is <laughs> we're not aware of this, even as we think of ourselves as good parents. We're not aware that these risks are there for head injury. We know we don't put hot liquids near kids or things like that, but we're not we're not clear on what those are. Um, there's some other categories, um, rough handling, we found that uh, parents can get a little frustrated and, you know, uh, pull a kid, pull their little baby out of the swing too fast um, or settle them down to um, diaper too quickly. Uh, another injury I was pretty frustrated at was where people change their kids in cars on car seats, real cars. And a minivan is still high. It's still 36 inches off the ground. Many injuries we see are when people have pickup trucks and they change their kid either in the bed of the truck or on the a back seat or, or front seat of a pickup truck. And they just turn away for a second and the child just falls from the seat to the floor of the car, but it causes an, you know, for an infant, that's a serious head injury. Yeah, and, and, and as you're talking about these falls, I'm visualizing them because you've done a great job of sharing them. And, and these infants, although they have some falling related reflexes, they're not as adept to control their body as we are to brace with elbows and wrists and things like that. And their head being the largest, heaviest part of their body is likely to go head first, just like toast is always butter side down. <laughs> it's like the head is going to hit the ground first. Katie, I, I see you smiling on our Zoom call because Lois is taking the this medical issue and saying the best medicine is prevention. Uh, and that's in your wheelhouse. Yes, I, I love that angle. And it's really interesting. And I'm actually just thinking about how all parents or caregivers or anyone who's had exposure to little siblings is reenacting many times when they could probably think of those two second distractors. And, and I like how you said that, Lois, it's never intentional or hardly ever. Unfortunately, we know they're going to talk a little more about the other side of head trauma, but it's really interesting to just be reminded of what that split second. Um, So thank you for sharing your research. That's so interesting. We're going to take a small commercial break and then we'll be right back to continue the discussion. The Reimagined Medicine podcast is brought to you by the University of Arizona College of Medicine, Phoenix. Dr. Johnny Lifshitz serves as the director of the Translational Neurotrauma Research Program, which is a joint venture through Barrow Neurological Institute at Phoenix Children's Hospital and the Department of Child Health at the University of Arizona College of Medicine, Phoenix, and the Phoenix Veterans Affair Healthcare System. Dr. Katie Bright is the chair of the Curriculum Committee and Associate Dean of Clinical and Competency-Based Education at the University of Arizona College of Medicine, Phoenix. She is a family physician practicing at Bayless Integrated Healthcare. 
Welcome back to the Reimagine Medicine podcast. We're talking about head injuries in children, children that include infants, toddlers, all the way through our teenagers. And we're trying to address the question of when it's time to see the doctor with Dr. Lois Sayers. I'm really excited to extend the conversation beyond our infants and into our older children, Lois, because I was fortunate years ago to publish on an acute sign of traumatic brain injury known as the fencing response. And we are now extending that to include immediate physiological consequences of brain injury. They include snoring and laughing and crying and vomiting. These are really brainstem issues. And without question, if someone is on one of those scooters around town or is on a skateboard and they fall, hit their head and start snoring or vomiting or are in an unnatural position, we would want them to see the doctor. Can you help our readers understand going from the obvious to the much less obvious uh, when is it time to see the doctor? Okay, so yeah, we talked about like early sports and those are fairly safe for children, little soccer leagues and so and even flag football. And I should just say too that I have two boys and they played every sport. And also my one of my children did get a serious concussion from a skateboard, a longboard injury, not wearing a helmet, even though he was a lacrosse player. And what ended up happening, and this might help parents, is that he himself made the choice that he didn't want to play lacrosse any longer because the head injury was so severe that it did um, it did have all of uh, some what you're describing as very terrible side effects he couldn't focus he he could barely uh, put a sentence together and it was so scary to him that even though he was recovering and he would be able to go back to play if he wanted to he he felt that he wanted to make the decision and I think what I would do is as parents, I think we need to help our children learn how to assess risk. We have been teaching that in the pandemic. We've said like, well, you, you were not going to keep you inside. Where do you want the risks to get COVID where you pick? And I think the same is true for injury and not just um, infectious disease. How much does lacrosse mean to you? How much does playing football for the U of A mean to you? If it does, you out here, why don't we do some research together on what those risks are? And I think giving your child autonomy and choice is the kind of tool that they'll have going forward to, to make the right decision, whatever that is. Um, and, and it is, my, my son now is very, very conservative when it comes to biking, wearing a helmet and uh, doing other things that are uh, potentially uh, injurious. I will mention too that he had a weird reaction. We used the concussion clinic down at PCH and he wasn't really recovering in this one area of headaches. So they recommended he see an um, ophthalmological um, neurologist. And I don't think there are more than two maybe in the whole state. And she actually, after a long uh, screening process, realized that the, um, the injury triggered migraines. And so what was really happening with his eyes and being fuzzy and cloudy all the time was that he was now getting migraines. So then now his biggest consequence is having to manage uh, the, the results of the head injury. So for parents, you know, you aren't going to prevent it, but you can sit down with your children. It sounds like you have the same uh, viewpoints that Katie and I have. Uh, Katie and I each have three sons of our own and uh, navigate these challenging waters together without a doubt. Um, I do like the way that you 
stated your assessment of risk and bringing the kids up to evaluate what's going on. Um, it's, it's also, I want to reinforce for our listeners, vision is so important in concussion. Um, and it's simply because as human beings, vision is such a large part of our brain, uh, all the way from our eyes to the back of our head, that it can cause double vision, blurred vision, sensitivity to light, all of these things. And it's a great tool for parents to say, well, my kid keeps complaining. They can't read or they can't see colors or things are blurry or it feels like they just woke up because they can't see properly. Um, and that is time to see the doctor. I want to spend, if I could, just five or two minutes talking to you about how difficult the recovery process is, because as teenagers, they have to be in a dark room and they can't be on their phone and they can't use their eyes. And that's impossible. I mean, it was, it was, it's just not a realistic way. And I'm hoping that medicine can find different treatments to help children recover from head injuries without asking them to do the impossible. And those kids that may have other obligations, whether it's a need or a, a mandatory need to work or take care of siblings, those dark rooms and, and rest do not fit. Katie? Yeah, those are, this is so great. And I'm, I'm listening and thinking about all of these pearls. I do have a quick side question because I know we want to kind of take the discussion in a different direction. You know, when we talked about skateboarding and this electric scooters that are on the corners that don't have helmets. And I get a little bit nervous, right? Cause all of our kids, they want to have fun. They want to do these things. And it's, it's enticing. I do feel like though, overall, when I'm out bike riding on the canal or out, I feel like I see a lot more helmet usage. And I, and I, I know I'm kind of optimistic, but I'm wondering what the data shows. Are we, am I just being optimistic or are we seeing data that reflects increase protect, I mean, break your arms, break your legs. You only have one brain, right? Like that's what we care about. And are we seeing that in the data and what, what is that looking like? Yes, we are. I mean, PCH2 does an excellent job. We give out bike helmets, uh, the multi-movement helmet, uh, which really then doesn't like jar your neck. So, um, and like car seats, don't forget we were, that's where we were first when we had car seats and now that it was a big source of child's general injury in a car accident. Mm -hmm. uh, and now with the laws that are very strict on uh, booster seats and parents taking that into account uh, till the child is uh, four foot nine or uh, 60 pounds, I think. But, you know, that's, that's just uh, something to really consider where, where, what is the manner in which a person get a child gets a head injury in a car accident on a scooter, on a bike. And yes, we are seeing more helmets and they are saving heads. It's, it's yeah. nice because I know we're attacking on the primary care front too. And it's just nice to see some of that, um, some of the effect of that education. And Lois, I want to go back to a soapbox that I stand on whenever I talk about head injury and helmet wearing that you brought up. It's the point that, or it extends your point about teaching our kids about risk. And our our best teachers for our children are our own behavior or a parent's behavior. And so when I see a family with mom and dad on bikes without helmets and kids with helmets, the only thing that goes through my head is when is the next time the child is going to ask mom or dad, how old do I have to be when I don't have to wear a helmet? And the answer to that is you need to be dead and not wear a helmet. That's where I need to stand on my soapbox. <laughs> 
Yeah, I agree with that. I, I bike a lot. I just biked like 30 miles today, actually. And I ha- I'm road bike. I also canal bike. That's great. I know. We'll just keep messaging and messaging and <laughs> slowly yeah. but surely it seems to be sinking in um, with our with our own children and, and hopefully beyond as we educate. So I'm going to take the, the discussion just in a slightly different direction. Uh, Lois, we, we talked about the startling reminder that head trauma is the number one cause of death in children, in, in little children under five. Traumatic brain injury can also result from other causes, unfortunately, such as non-accidental trauma or child abuse. You published child abuse screening guidelines for Western trauma. And I was just hoping you could share a little bit about that with our listeners. Well, so there is a segment of the population that's actually growing. Um, I think about a decade ago is when the, um, the trauma directors around at these children's hospitals around the country were realizing that about 20% of the injuries that were coming in for children under the age of five appeared to be inflicted or not accidental, basically child abuse. And like Johnny said, because the head is heavy and uh, it is the most injured part. It's not only they're not, they sometimes come in with multi-system injuries, often they do, but the head is very, is injured in the, in the, co- in the cause of death. Um, so we did, we, we worked ourselves at PCH on developing a screen. And then um, I was honored as a member of the WTA to be able to bring that information in the research we did uh, up to the Western Trauma Association and a joint uh, pediatric trauma society algorithm. And what we, uh, of course, age is, that's the bottom line, age, how young is the child when they come in, there just isn't an explanation for injury, head injury, Um, very good. And other than I dropped the baby, the baby fell off the bed, um, or the baby fell or, or or fell on his head in some other way or was hit by a sibling, or um, uh, for the head injury. And I think that one of the more important things is that, again, medicine was working under the assumption that, well, I can't rule an accident out. I can't rule it out. Okay, well, you can't rule it out, but that's not your job to rule it out. It's all your job is, is to suspect it and then report it. And then, and that's, that's what we really have to educate clinicians about. Don't worry about whether or not you're gonna hurt someone's feelings or you know, embarrass them. There's a life at stake, and as a, a clinician, that's your patient. And we, and if you're, if you have a question, then send the child down to Phoenix Children's. We haven't found that to be an issue, really, in any way, shape, or form. Um, uh, so I think that uh, we see the psychosocial characteristics are that there's often violence in the family. They have uh, criminal backgrounds often. Uh, these are, um, there's impoverishment, there's an unorganized, a disorganized household uh, with people coming and going. Uh, the age of the mother, you'd be surprised, is not actually a predictor. For a long time, people thought, oh, young mothers are more at risk, but really the age of the mother is somewhat older. It sounds like you're describing a host of social determinants of health and health equities and inequities that may be contributing to an environment that increases risk. And it goes back to that statement that you said about ed- educating and informing about risk so that risk can be mitigated. We did. And just so you know, we developed a pilot called Sunbright, which is about uh, helping parents assess the risk related to that and being able to educate them before um, we um, 
either discharge them or even even after reporting. So as you you may or may not know this, but for sure, almost over ninety percent of all um, child reports are child neglect. It is not child abuse. It's a small percent of all that's out there, and in part that's legal because legally it's very difficult to uh, establish beyond uh, the legal rules what. Uh, whether or not the the actual injury was inflicted. And because they can't substantiate it, they literally uh, don't substantiate it. And then we, 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 we have a whole class of injuries that are unsubstantiated. But getting back to the clinician, it's not, it's not your job to substantiate the injury. It's not the clinician's job to determine if the parents are telling the truth and you believe them. It's your job just to suspect. And if you have suspicion, then report. And then believe me, the social workers know their job and they will take it from there. They know how to investigate it. Right, I tell all of our um, medical students too, I mean, we are mandatory reporters and we need to be the voice for those who are defenseless and dependent and have no way of protecting themselves. So we don't need to be the detective. We don't need to substantiate or if we, if we have suspicion, we report, plain and simple. So that's great to be, a, it's a great reminder. Thank you, Lois, for reminding our listeners of that too. It's so important. Dr. Sears, thank you so much for sharing your work and your insight with us. It's been an absolute pleasure talking with you today. Thank you for having me. Thank you, Lois. It could have gone on for hours. We appreciate your time. Johnny, what a wonderful discussion that was and, and such a good reminder for all of us. It was so nice to be able to talk about um, prevention. I mean, here, here I am. I know I, I say this a lot as a primary care physician, but focusing on prevention. And after all, I mean, the whole purpose of prevention is to reduce risks. And ultimately in this situation, um, preventive metrics, making sure we're educating our, our patients and our kiddos, ultimately prevents head trauma and long-term consequences. Yeah, without question. And Dr. Sayers, what I know about her is she's actually a mathematician and a statistician and really deep into the data. And so when we talk about risk and risk reduction, it's actually a percentage reduction, which means that we can't eliminate. There are still going to be some instances that creep through. And so what I liked about how she was presenting it is be informed, be educated so that you can identify it. And once you identify it and you're informed, when it does occur, you don't have to be the one who 100% diagnoses it. If you get that unsettled feeling in your stomach or something doesn't feel right, talk, reach out, seek out medical care, and it's okay. Take your child or take yourself um, to see someone like yourself, Katie, as a primary care physician who can then add evidence and, and help towards recovery. Absolutely. There's never ever a, an instance when we wouldn't absolutely welcome any uh, parent bringing in their kiddo with questions, concerns. You mentioned some of the more red flag things, which would be seek medical attention immediately post um, trauma and, and, you know, if we see some of those symptoms that are concerning, such as snoring, laughing, vomiting, you know, loss of consciousness, obviously that's a little bit different and that's immediate seeking attention, but we are always here to talk to our patients if they have questions and concerns. And, and I like how you said that, Johnny, we can't, we can't, our kids don't live in a bubble. We want them to be able to have active lives and, and we really need to focus on those pre preventive measures that can keep them as safe as possible so they can be normal, healthy kiddos. 
Yeah, and the extension to that is we were talking about preventive medicine, wearing helmets, putting children or infants on the floor, not on counters. And it's strange because early assessment or early medical care is preventive medicine for the chronic effects that could occur. Those chronic effects that would be lifelong disabilities or changes in quality of life. So I'm just getting goosebumps right now thinking about how the helmet wearing is preventive, but so is seeking that early medical, uh, medical care is also preventive medicine. And even earlier than seeking care after injury or asking questions is, you know, following up with your primary care doctor or pediatrician so we can identify risk factors, maybe even in the home that parents didn't even think about that are putting their kids at risk, uh, even aside from helmet wearing, just, hey, here are some risk factors. Let's work together to to decrease risk. Yeah, well, exactly. Well, Johnny, as always, we could talk all night. This was a, this was a wonderful uh, podcast. I enjoyed, I enjoyed doing this with you and with Dr. Sayers. Exactly. And have so much to go home and talk to my own children, my own boys about. Uh, For now, lift shits out like a well-functioning GI system. Right out like a good night's sleep. The Reimagined Medicine Podcast is brought to you by the University of Arizona College of Medicine, Phoenix. Join us again as we highlight aspects of clinical care, education, and research in an ongoing endeavor to reimagine medicine. Our podcast team is Dr. Katie Bright, Dr. Johnny Lifshitz, Beth Smith, and the media production team at the UA College of Medicine, Phoenix. Our theme song, Dungeon of Return Days, was written and recorded by Midair Machine. The song is accessible on freemusicarchive.org and used under the CCBYSA 4.0 license.